So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Dan Hennam. He is the COO of Zen Ledger, which is a cryptocurrency tax company. He's also the CIO of Hannum Capital Management. He's got a long track record inside uh, the financial system, inside Wall Street, as well as going way back into the early days of cryptocurrencies. Um, super insightful information that we talked about, different risk management strategies, different ways to look at Bitcoin and other crypto assets. We dive into the taxes, of course, and so many other good topics. A really good conversation. I really enjoyed it, and you will too. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Show. I am sitting down today with Dan Hunnam. He is the COO of Zen Ledger, which is a um, tax management solution. He's also the CIO, Chief Investment Officer of Hanum Capital Management, um, which is a crypto uh, management company, asset asset company. Anyway, Dan, we've had uh, several good conversations, including uh, before we hit record on this right now, uh, but always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome. Absolutely, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, we were just kind of, we talked about a bunch of different subjects before we went live. We were just kind of starting to talk about um, some of the problems that some of these crypto asset companies, management companies have because they don't have the traditional investment knowledge or background. and you're about to tell me about your background. So why don't we start with, why don't you introduce yourself to people who don't know who you are? Yeah, happy to. Um, so my background is largely in traditional finance. Went to the University of South Carolina, um, got my MBA there. Went up to New York and started working at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Was there for about three years um, until I was introduced to a couple of buddies that were starting to work very heavily in the crypto industry and was able to get a position at Blockchain Capital uh, so left New York, went out to the West Coast and really kind of had to forget a lot of the things that I learned um, on traditional asset management and kind of understand how to not only look at a crypto project, but look at kind of what are what are the right tools, what are the right teams, what are the right skill sets, what's the right timing, especially from a venture perspective, um, to really be able to allocate capital efficiently into, into the crypto industry. So was there for about two years, really learned a lot of like the ins and outs. Um, this was in late 14 to almost like early 16. Um, so at that time, there really wasn't that many funds in the space. There really wasn't that many projects that were actually seeking venture capital. Um, so it was a really good opportunity to kind of broaden out the network, really learn uh, about crypto in general, learn about venture specific to crypto, and then really just start building out that Rolodex of, of partners, teammates, co-investors, and things like that. Um, then was at the right place at the right time in early 2016 um, when I was around a couple of high net worth individuals that were looking to gain exposure to the crypto industry. Kind of uh, figured it'd be the best timing that I probably would get to be able to venture out on my own and, and kind of start my own fund and be able to use some of the learnings that I've had along the way. Um, so we were able to start our first fund back then. Um, had four LPs in the first fund, same four in our second fund. Haven't raised any capital, outside capital since probably October of 2016. Um, and I've been managing that capital base for our LPs ever since. Uh, like you mentioned, we're, we're venture specific, so we don't invest in liquid assets or 
we're not day trading or anything like that. So we're typically looking for seed or series A um, startups in the crypto space, crypto specific, um, that are either providing infrastructure or providing ways to either be onboarded or offboarded into uh, into crypto. And then also, how do we not only get people in crypto, but once they're in there, how do they use different services and different products and different features to really kind of map out that ecosystem? So that's largely what we're doing day to day. On the Zenledger side, joined the team about nine months ago. They just raised a, a, a five and a half million dollar seed round, um, and we're building out a crypto tax platform. Um, as a not only as an investor through the fund, but as a personal investor, I was always looking for a platform to use that could aggregate all of my trades through all different wallets and APIs and things like that. And in looking at some of the different providers, they, uh, in my opinion, provided the best software and. Um, I'd always been looking to kind of get my hands dirty um, on the entrepreneurial side and kind of use some of these skills and, and things that I acquired on the investment side um, to apply it towards the business and kind of was a, a good fit and, and a good timing to, to join the team. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's a, <clears throat> quite a diverse background. So we were talking about um, how recently a couple, uh, one big notable fund, Adaptive Capital, kind of decided to close up shop. Um, some other ones are um, potentially closing up shop here as well. And they've ran into some problems, uh, obviously uh, running out of money, I guess, is the big problem. Um, and we were talking about how um, it was a little bit shocking because, you know, even though they supposedly were doing really, really well, they they kind of lost big and how like um, traditional finance uses more risk management and hedging and things like that. Um, what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing that I would say is I I think you need to be an Indian before you can be a chief per se. And I think like, I wouldn't be able to allocate capital like I do now without going through those steps and and not being the boss, but being the, the low man on the totem pole. So starting off my career as an analyst and really understanding how to, how to properly analyze the company, how to look through cash flows and, and, different metrics that we use um, through the firm. So I think that was something that really helped me out um, is really kind of putting the ego aside and really just learning, being a sponge and, and understanding how large institutions that are managing trillions of dollars of capital really work. And the, the reasons other than the, the 08 bailout, um, they're typically pretty smart about how to be very risk, risk adverse um, when you deploy risk, how to, how to properly allocate that and, and use that in your model to see kind of where that risk factor is. Um, so long story short, I, th- I think having experience um, in traditional markets kind of gives you a framework and a structure to learn from. Um, so I think my experience in traditional finance and then through blockchain capital of not actually allocating capital, but just doing a lot of the grunt work really helped me kind of understand the process, and understand the right and wrong things to do. I don't have direct details uh, as far as adaptive and what risk management they had or had not. Um, as I'm sure we've seen, it doesn't sound like there was much risk management or um, or some hedging ability. So I guess my, my, my take from that is I think having, having experience um, at an established firm before you start your own uh, can really help alleviate some of the problems and issues that, that some of these funds are now running into. I know, um, you know, on that day when Bitcoin took that nasty plunge, the day the whole market took that nasty plunge, uh, Bitcoin took that nasty plunge. And, you know, it's been reported that um, a lot of that was caused by bot trading, which I think happened across every market, traditional markets as well. Um, 
and it, it specifically uh, really hit Bitcoin hard. A lot of that might have been with BitMEX having some problems, I think, as well. There was reports of their exchange going down. Um, do you think that like losing Adaptive and maybe a couple of these other funds might help Bitcoin in the long run, where you don't have all these people constantly trying to pile on the shorts? I think, I think it's like a two-sided answer. Um, I think in the in the short run, it might, um, just since we're we're kind of hitting some interesting price levels and 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 seeing some different support and resistant metrics. Um, but I think long term, I think, in my opinion, the, the the more people that we have looking at these models, I know we talked talked about before um, Chris Berninski and, and his book, Crypto Assets, I think the more people that are willing to share their learnings and share how they're thinking about the markets and share what models they're using helps other people use those models and adapt them and build on them. So I think we're kind of in the space where you need, unfortunately, to have some people fail for the, the entire asset space to move forward. Um, it's kind of like the way I look at it. So I think they're the in the adaptive sense. I think that the entire team is really smart. I think they'll all land on their feet, and I think they'll learn a lot from this scenario, which I think will eventually move not only their ability to have better risk management protocols, but then also the entire like investor spectrum will, will continue to adapt. Um, no pun intended, but <laughs> continue to adapt and evolve, and, and we'll get better models and better people. Um, so I think there's a lot of good that came out of it. Um, I guess that's my take on it. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Um, I'm curious, like, uh, so you've been in the space for quite a while. I think you said you went to blockchain capital in like 2014 or 2015. I mean, that's super early on. That was like basically just Bitcoin at the time. I mean, Ethereum maybe just starting to surface. Um, maybe you're starting to see a Coinbase or something like that pop up super early. It's hard to remember that far back even. Um, and then you go through, you know, the 2016, really 2017 boom where there was, you know, 2,500 tokens dropped into the market. I think today there's like 5,000 or something. I can't even keep track anymore. But I'm curious how your thought process has changed um, going back from that time at Block, Blockchain Capital um, through to now having your own fund, going through 2017 and to today. And I guess specifically to kind of bring that question down, how has it changed in a sense where like, it seemed like the technology was so new and the opportunities were so big. But to me, it seems like today, the clear winners have kind of emerged. And I don't see the 2,000 coins having an open playing field anymore. I'm just curious what your viewpoint is on that. Yeah, no, interesting question. I mean, when I was at Blockchain Capital, I worked with Brock and J.R. Willits on MasterCoin, which is one of the first ICOs ever. Um, yeah. So kind of being on the front lines of that was an interesting glimpse into how to raise non-dilutive capital and how to kind of structure that in, in the right way. I think that was like a, a really fascinating experience. I, the way that I kind of sum it up is I, I think people start off with Bitcoin, then they expand because what they see is inefficiencies instead of trade-offs. And I think that's the way that I view it is there's calculated trade-offs between what Bitcoin is and what Bitcoin isn't. And I think people were always talking about scalability or throughput or kind of all these other metrics of, of what Bitcoin should be or trying to adapt like Satoshi's messages back on Bitcoin forum in 2009, 2010 and, and say, this is what this means and this is what that means. So I think there is just a lot of money being thrown at different projects. Uh, I think there's a lot of people trying to solve different aspects kind of at the same time. Um, but what I've tend to see is people kind of start off with Bitcoin, explore into altcoins, and then typically kind of find their way back into Bitcoin. And I think they, they kind of do that once they start understanding 
the calculated trade-offs and the calculated um, decisions of, of why Bitcoin is what it is. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers some of it. I mean, that's a, that's 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 a good response. And I and I was talking to someone about that earlier, where you know, uh, what is better, right? What features are you optimizing for? And so, if you're optimizing for censorship resistance, immutability, um, and things like that, then I mean, then Bitcoin. If you're trying to optimize for throughput, then then maybe something else, right? But I think at the same time, right? I think if you understand the way technology cycles work, and you know, you go back and study them throughout history. Uh, they they kind of move in predictable patterns, and so you know the newest the, the most recent one like the internet. The internet was super slow in the beginning, and every time it got faster, the bandwidth got sucked up because more stuff got put onto it, uh, and and we still have that problem today. And now five G is going to come out and make it even faster, etc. Um, so there's never enough bandwidth, and I think you know Bitcoin. We've seen that next layer now, where now with Lightning we have unlimited throughput for no cost. Um, so all those people that were faster and cheaper, like, did they lose their their use case? Is he, you think it's consolidated around Bitcoin now? Uh, I think it's like it's multifaceted because I think a lot of the the founders, quote unquote, or engineers of, of these protocols and of these coin types, I think what they were looking for is an exit back into fiat. So they were looking to release whatever ABC coin, get enough people involved, and then be able to have an, an exit event where they could accelerate their, their wealth through that liquidity. Um, so I think that's kind of like the, the one thing that I look at as well is a lot of people in Bitcoin, I'm sure you know, are, are not really looking at Bitcoin returns in the sense of dollar values, but truly in the sense of, of having kind of Bitcoin become the standard and, and being able to use Satoshis to, to, accept, to be able to operate and things like that. So like you said, whether it's Lightning Network or other layer two technologies, um, there's a lot of stuff being built on the core protocol, um, which I think is really fascinating for me but so i think that's kind of one of the steps is i I think as you see in a lot of quote-unquote gold rushes you see people come in and try to kind of use the market um and accelerate their own approaches and so i think that's kind of like one piece is just just seeing a, a lot of teams that came in and um and kind of knew that they could have a have a token sale and then kind of dump on retail and rinse and repeat and do that again um, sure. Since the beginning of time, they've been trying to do alchemy, right? Trying to turn uh, lead into gold. And so uh, I think that continues today, right? Always trying to do that. We were talking about before we went live, we were talking about, you know, the virus that's affecting everything right now. Um, it, it pretty much dominates every conversation. You, you can't seem to talk to anybody without talking about it right now. Um, and there's so many different impacts to to everything from the way that we're working to the way that we're making money, customer base, when the recovery, blah, blah, blah. Um, but when we've gone through other crashes like this in the past, like, well, not, not virus-induced, but like in 2008, for example, um, the reaction of the Fed, the reaction of the central banks, the government, et cetera, um, you know, seems to then make a further use case for gold, which has been a sound money that's on, you know, on manipulated, not, not able to be manipulated. And in 2008, uh, based off of that response, we were given Bitcoin. And it seems like today we're seeing the same thing, right? Unlimited QE, they, they've called for now, you know, $2 trillion, $6 trillion of stimulus, $10 trillion, who knows, $30 trillion probably by the time they're done. Um, and and at the same time, uh, they're kind of proving the use case uh, of Bitcoin because they're inflating the money supply at the same time. And at the exact same time, we're going to witness Bitcoin reduce its inflation rate. 
do you think that's going to be like a big kind of marketing push, maybe a big wake up call for the market? Yes. In the sense that I think that the people that have been paying attention are, are, are typically the people that understand the significance of, of the having impact, even yesterday of, of having the mining difficulty um, uh, decrease. So I, I think there's a lot of things that are like in the weeds uh, of where the general public may not understand the significance. Um, I, I personally come from the sense, as we talked about kind of at, at the beginning of the conversation is I, I don't truly believe that enough people are going to say, okay, here's my 700 bucks or my 1200 bucks and I'm going to put it all into Bitcoin. They're, they're going to pay their bills. They're going to save for rent. They're going to hopefully be a little bit more, um, more uh, prepared with, with uh, the next crisis or the next impact. So, um, so I think that's kind of like the, the first thing is, I think we get a lot of hype in, especially on crypto Twitter of everyone's going to buy into Bitcoin and this is the best event. And like, what are the odds that this happens during like the having moment and things like that? So I, I think over time, people will be able to look back and kind of see what happens during the next two to three to four months of, of Bitcoin price um, and things like that. I, I just personally don't believe that we're going to see this like magical takeoff event where everyone's going to put in their their extra dollars into into Bitcoin. I just don't think enough people in the general public have done enough research on Bitcoin, the advantages that Bitcoin presents to gold. And especially, I mean, you look at that now, 95% of people are index funds and the, the rest are, are using some sort of um, of broker dealer to, to, to make their trades or make their investments for them. So I have a feeling that gold will probably see a bounce before Bitcoin does. But I think over time, as we continue to educate the public on the trade-offs and the advantages of using Bitcoin over gold, it's only rational to believe that people will, will trend to turn towards a, a more sound form of money. And in my opinion, there's no better sound form of money than Bitcoin or, or a currency or money that has better monetary properties and, and values. So I think over time, we'll see that adoption. I just I just don't know if in the middle of this chaos, if enough people are going to go, you know what, I, I'd rather not pay my rent. And I'm going to put in my 1200 bucks into Bitcoin. I, I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I I don't see that happening in any in any world either. And and I've I've often said what I what I always say is don't confuse what something is today from what it could be in the future. It's like looking at like a three year old LeBron James and going that kid's never going to play basketball. That's ridiculous, right? Like don't confuse what they are now. This little tree is not going to grow into a big tree. Um, and and I would agree that Bitcoin is not ready. First of all, the people right aren't ready, and Bitcoin is not ready to instantly just take over the world. It's not. It's not ready for that. Um, it's a gradual process. But I think um, you know, think think about gold. Right, it's a ten trillion dollar asset class, but yet not that many people really talk about our own gold. No. And so it's not like we have to have global adoption of Bitcoin. Like, <laughs> I mean, gold's got ten trillion and doesn't even have global adoption, right? So um, we don't need that. But I think it will be interesting to see these things happening in real time. And I think what I guess specifically uh, I'm more thinking about is um, you, you were talking about before we went live, um, the virus and what's going on. And you talked about like the loss of a lot of our civil liberties. And um, we're losing a lot of freedom, a lot of liberties in a lot of areas, um, a lot of them relating to money, right? So they're inflating the money supply infinitely infinitely and at the same time tightening up banking laws and restrictions and we're seeing uh, around the world um, them getting rid of cash right china's supposedly picked up 600 billion dollars worth of cash and burned it um we're seeing places uh 
right now in the US where they don't want to accept cash. And the FDIC even put out a press release yesterday reassuring everyone to keep their money in the bank, which wasn't very reassuring. That was wild. So do is it is is it more of those events that start making people think maybe I need a life raft here, like an alternative? Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately what, what typically happens is there's some major event where people start questioning things. And I think we, we've just lived through such a prosperous time in history where people didn't have to question things. Um, you knew kind of, if you were employed, you knew that you're getting a paycheck and you knew kind of in, in a relative sense, you knew that you were somewhat taken care of. So I think unfortunately you need some of these kind of global aspects or global kind of meltdowns, whether it's virus, whether it's um, like the gr- great financial uh, crisis of, of 08, 10, or even like after 9 11, I think people don't question things until they're confronted with them. So I think when the, the effect of this is people are going to start questioning more of who controls money, what is money, how, are, how is this being asset, what am I losing from this? And the, the amount of people that just have no idea how money works is, is kind of shocking. But I think that's how the system is, uh, has been allowed to just continue to function because no one questions it. So I think. Sure. In my opinion, the best impact of this is are people going to start questioning what is money? How is this being valued for me? And then going into like the actual politics of this is people are starting to realize not only do you have kind of like Kelly Loeffler and some of the some of our own congressmen and senators in, in, our, in our state, but you've had people that had closed doors meetings that came out and then sold stock and, and made quite a bit of money on private confidential meetings that then became broadcasted to the public. So I think people are starting to lose trust in governments, in money, in um, in, in, in things that have always kind of been told to don't trust it'll work. And I think that's kind of the first step of, of getting kind of what, what Satoshi said back in 08 of, of kind of having the, um, the chance on, on the sense of brink, um, in, in like the original, uh, in the original block. So I think one more, Chancellor, people, the chancellor's on the brink of a, of a second bailout. Yeah. Um, so I think when, when when people start questioning that and they actually start seeing the impact on themselves, they'll start looking for, for better alternatives. And I think once you start down the, the rabbit hole, you typically end up at Bitcoin. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think I said this just on an earlier interview um, that I think, you know, even if Bitcoin were to fail today, I think the greatest gift that it's given everybody is that it's opened up people's minds and has started people down this path of, of wanting to learn more and opening up and thinking critically and things like that. So um, there's, de- there's definitely something there. And uh, I just think that, you know, with everything with, with this crisis that's going on, like uh, it's, it's accelerating things very rapidly. Like you said, people weren't really thinking about this before, but now they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of a sudden people are like, Oh shoot, what about my money? Is my money even safe? I don't know. I better go get money out. Right. But then what? So now I pull the cash out and I put it in my mattress. Well, that's dangerous because what if my house gets robbed? Or what if none of the stores will take my cash? So now I went and pulled $100,000 of cash out the bank and now I can't spend it anywhere and the bank won't let me deposit it back in. Yep. Now what did I do? So uh, people are fearful. We're seeing it. That's why the FDIC made that, 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 that video. Um, and they're naturally going to be looking for every option that they can think of. No, I agree. And I... Just to chime in real quick, I think that's another aspect of when you dig into like the gold versus Bitcoin analogy, when people start researching like what happened in 1933 and then what happened in 1971 with gold of in 33, our government confiscating gold and not allowing private citizens to own gold and then actually going off the gold standard. So like there, there's precedent for gold basically being used 
for for monetary purposes and and for government purposes already, where there hasn't been a use case where Bitcoin has been mandatory. And, and there's, in my opinion, it's not possible for them to confiscate Bitcoin or confiscate that. So just want to chime in on that as well, because I think people will typically turn from fiat to gold and then gold to Bitcoin. But I just don't think gold is safe as a lot of people make it out to be, especially given previous history uh, of government uh, acquisition and and basically the government taking big, uh, taking gold out of out of private citizens' hands, which has happened before as well. Yeah, and uh, the, there's there's definitely that risk, and then you have the never ending manipulation of of gold with paper contracts as well. So you have that, um, which is a problem as well. Um, everything has risks, right? And you just have to understand what those risks are. And that kind of goes back to what we originally opened up with, which is risk management. So for example, Bitcoin has a much greater reward potential than gold does, but it also has a higher risk level, right? Um, gold has a lower risk, but also a lower return uh, profile. Cash has probably the lower risk an almost no return profile. You're almost guaranteed to lose holding cash, but it's less risky. But then the FDIC makes us feel like maybe it's not. Um, so you just kind of have to understand the different risk returns, right? How, how, would, you, how would you think is an easy framework for people to kind of think about those risk reward, reward profiles? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's a tough one. I, I think there's, there's so many different variables in play on each one of them. Um, I mean, when you think about like fiat, you look at there's a ton of countries overseas that are now have negative interest rates where you literally lose money by storing it in a bank. Um, and people aren't really questioning that yet. So are they going to start questioning it when it gets to 1%, 5%, 10%, 20%? Like, so just holding fiat is not the safest thing as we've seen. Um, with gold, like you said, not only the confiscatability, I don't know if that's even a word, um, but then also, like you said, this past week, we've seen multiple reports where People are not satisfied with redeeming IOUs or paper receipts of gold and they want actual bullion and they want to actually hold it and they're not able to do that. And that's throwing a big wrench into the market. So I think that's, as we, as anyone in, in kind of crypto or Bitcoin has heard, not your keys, not your coins. I think that's one of the best things about crypto is the ability to, to use a bearer asset and actually redeem that asset and, and be the only one that can access that. I think that, that kind of, in my opinion, de-escalates some of the risk involved. Um, and I think especially now, as we've seen, whether it's six trillion, whether it's 10 trillion, whether it's 20 trillion, like the ability to print money is not going to stop. And as we've seen over between the last 12 years, it only continues. And the next time something happens, we'll just add on an extra couple zeros to the end. And and that, that'll that uh, kind of continue to confiscate wealth through that way. I'm sure you know of like the Cantillion effect where kind of the, the new money flows to, um, to, to the, the rich before it flows down to the poor. So like I said, I, I think... There's a ton of risk involved in, in Bitcoin. It's definitely not um, not riskless. I, I think it's definitely very binary, where it's either going to fail or it's going to succeed. Um, the the acceleration of how long will that take? I think it's being influenced by some of these external factors. Um, I personally believe that not only will my paper returns or returns denominated in fiat accelerate and uh, achieve better returns through Bitcoin, anyways. Um, but I believe in, in a world where you will, we will use Bitcoin as the monetary base um, and be able to transact, whether it's on Layer 2, whether it's on Lightning. Um, there, there's a ton of work being done to privacy as well. So I think that's the, the other aspect is you're seeing the, the Japanese, you're seeing the Chinese that are converting to central bank digital currencies, which are getting some applause. But I think that's really another aspect of being able to track 
money being able to turn off and on faucets to individuals. We've seen a bunch of people get like zero hedge. We've seen countless times where people are deplatformed and, and they're de-incentivized and they're demonetized where they can't accept funds. I think that's the, the beautiful part about Bitcoin is to, to say it only works for criminals is to, is to say it works for everyone. Um, you that, know, that, that, that proves the use case of it. Exactly. So that's like the beauty of it is, in my opinion, the risk has been, the risk is apparent in the traditional systems. It goes back to what we talked about earlier of just, there's not enough people who one, give a, give a shit. And then two are going to spend enough time and energy to understand how the system works um, and understand kind of the benefits that Bitcoin um, evolves. But like I said, I, I think the people that do take that road and take that time and go down the rabbit hole, they tend to kind of swiftly go back to Bitcoin. So I know that's not uh, the, the exact answer that you're looking for of, of kind of how do we make this or what are the risks involved. But in my opinion, I think there's more risk of, of holding your, your dollars and then there is in, in holding UTXOs or, or holding private keys to your Bitcoin. Yeah. All right. Let's move into um, another topic that maybe you have some good insight about. Um, and that is what I believe is probably the number one barrier, well, at least one of the top barriers to Bitcoin adoption, and that is taxes. Um, I don't like to spend my Bitcoin. Uh, back in the 2016, 2017 days, I was, th- I was tossing those Bitcoin around like they're little chicklets, you know? And then all of a sudden, they're worth a lot of money, and you're like, what did I do? I had so many Bitcoin at one time. I can't believe it, right? Um, and I've thought of all the time I've spent Bitcoin. Oh, here's a couple, here's four Bitcoin, here's five Bitcoin, you know, when they're a couple hundred bucks each. Um, but I never replaced them and now I don't have them. So I never like to spend my Bitcoin. But beyond that, I would never want to spend Bitcoin because it's a taxable event every single time. So, you know, the old, you know, go, go buy your cup of coffee with it. I go buy a cup of coffee and now I got to figure out, okay, what was my cost basis and what was my profit or loss? And then I got to file a tax form. So that seems to be a really big barrier. And seeing as Zen Ledger handles the tax implications, what do you think? Do you think that's a big uh, drawback or maybe an obstacle to Bitcoin success? I do. And I think, it, in my opinion, it goes back to research and it goes back to people being educated on the topic. And when you look at what Bitcoin or digital currency is being associated with right now, it's being associated as property, not currency, not a commodity, not a bond, not a stock, not a security. So in that in itself, you start seeing a lot of these aspects of of taxes involved, whether it's a 1031 like kind exchange where in property, you're able to not have a capital gain or a taxable event occur when you swap between properties. That's not the same thing in crypto. So if you make 100 trades, that's 100 taxable events times that by 10 by, you know, so it it adds up frequently. I, I think taxation is a big aspect in crypto that leaves a lot to be solved. I think what we try to do from a Zenlager perspective is kind of play in the middle ground where we don't make the rules. We try to comply with the rules and, and provide software to allow people who are willing to comply and are looking to pay their taxes have the, the quickest and simplest and easiest way to do so. Um, we, we work with Coin Center. We, we've spoken. We were at the IRS summit a couple of weeks ago. So we're trying to work with legislators to, to get them to understand what this is and what it's not and, and how to actually make proper legislation and proper rules and guidance. And the, really what we first got was guidance back in 2014 and then a little bit of guidance uh, in the last couple of months around virtual currencies. Um, but there hasn't really been like a very thought out process of how are we going to, how are we going to tax this and what's the most efficient way to do so. Um, so I think that kind of creates a problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the adoption of, of Bitcoin and other assets is definitely hampered by the fact that you either have to use a, a software like Zenledger or you have to 
pretty much have meticulous records to calculate cost basis. What I think we do a great job of, of, of is giving people the option of choosing between hypo, lipo, and fifo, which can have a great impact on your Wait, cost. What was that? What was that you said? Hypo, fifo, and lipo. So highest in first out, last in first out, and first in first out, which are like the three common accepted accounting methods in crypto taxation. Okay. Um, and that can have a big change on things too. Like you said, you for some of our for, for some of our like bigger clients um, that have been participating in crypto since 2012, 13, 14, they bought a lot of their Bitcoin at 80 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks. So when, when they're transacting that $5 for their coffee, that's a cost basis of between the 80 bucks that they purchased the asset at. And let's say the six, seven, whatever round number, let's make it 10 grand that they sold that asset at. So even the accounting method can change because you can have highest inverse out, which will take the highest coin that you bought and be the cost basis for that exchange. So there's different things that we do on, from an accounting standpoint that can actually alleviate some of those cost basis concerns. Tax loss harvesting is a big thing where you can actually write off assets that are at a loss that will offset any capital gains that you have. So there's some like very intuitive and pretty t- kind of advanced a- accounting methods that you can use to kind of offset some of your gains and things like that. But like I said, in my opinion, I think it stems from the fact that the IRS doesn't have and it's not a question of do they have manpower, do they have budget, but do they have the the um, the ability to kind of think outside the box and really understand what they're doing? And, and in my opinion, they haven't been able to do that yet. And we're still using guidance that's five, six years old that doesn't really apply to what a, a virtual currency or a digital currency should be uh, accounted as from an accounting perspective. So um, with Zen Ledger, um I guess it would hook into my wallet. So let's say that I had like a hot wallet on my phone and somehow I could integrate with that. So then I could transfer half a Bitcoin or whatever on my wallet. So that's like, that'd be essentially like going to the bank and withdrawing cash and putting it like going to the ATM, putting cash in my wallet. And now I have a little bit of walking around money. And as I go spend, um, it's creating taxable events on everything. But would Zen Ledger then be able to capture all that and go, oh, coffee and newspaper and t-shirt and then like figure all that out for me yeah so we we support over 400 different exchanges over 4200 different coin types in every single wallet type so it makes it super easy for you to come in most of like the largest exchanges we have one click apis with so like coinbase finance kraken bitmex most of those bigger exchanges you can come in and, and quickly have a one click api integration which will draw in all of your historical data same thing with the wallet address i think that's one of the beautiful parts about Bitcoin is is using a wallet address. You can use block explorers and other things to actually look and see exactly what's happened throughout that address, where funds were sent, when they were received, the value, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it's, it's very easy. And that's literally the first step of, of using ZenLedger is signing up, importing all of your wallets, importing all of your exchange accounts. And then we basically do the rest for you. We'll, we'll produce your 8949, your Schedule D, your Schedule 1. If you have overseas holdings, like if you're using Binance or if you're using BitMEX or um, a foreign exchange, um, you'll have to, and if it's over 10,000, you have to file what's called the FinCEN 114 or your FBAR. And then over 50,000 at any point throughout the season, the tax year, you have to file what's called a FACTA. Um, so anyways, long story short, basically once you import and aggregate all of your wallet accounts, all your wallet addresses, we support XPUB, ZPUB, YPUB, BEC32 addresses. So very easy to get everything in. And then our system does the rest. We automatically put together your tax forms. You can invite your CPA into the account to actually file them for you. You can download, you can print. Um, and then just recently, we teamed up with uh, with Andrew Gordon, who's out of Chicago, one of the, the leading crypto tax accountants. 
and his firm to provide fully prepared CPA plans as well. So we do have customers that don't want to mess with any of this stuff. They don't want to, they just want to make sure that they're complying and hands off. So we've partnered with a CPA firm where you can get not only your crypto, but your non-crypto taxes filed um, using a CPA as well. So we're, we're trying to provide not only the, the best do-it-yourself option, but then for the customers that don't want to do it themselves and want to have a CPA or an accountant sign off and, and approve and look over the returns, we offer that option as well. So then basically what you're saying is I could just walk around and spend all the Bitcoin I want and not have to worry about it because then Ledger will take care of all the taxes for me. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but you could. You wouldn't recommend it because it can't track it that well or because you shouldn't be spending your Bitcoin? I just I just think, and that's always like the interesting part of taking myself out of ZenLedger. Personally, I don't think that it's very wise to be spending Bitcoin at all. I think we're in the in a position right now where, in my opinion, it's smarter to accumulate and hold your Bitcoin over long term. Spend, your, spend your fiat, stack your sats. Or use any of the countless airdrops, whether it's BSV or BCH, or if you've used any other Ethereum-based token and you have XYZ coin and ABC coin, use some of those coins. If, if you really want to go through the process of using cryptocurrency to purchase items, there's other ways around it than using Bitcoin. Some may call me a maximalist. Some may, some may say I'm out of my mind, but that's I truly believe that Bitcoin um, is a long-term investment that shouldn't be spent right away. But if you wanted to, you could easily spend uh, however many transactions that you had in, in countless different places, and we'd easily be able to integrate and, and automate those into your tax forms for you. Nice. All right. Well, that's good information. So uh, we're going to wrap it up with that. I appreciate you sharing that. Like I said, you know, I think that the tax situation is one of the biggest obstacles to using it as a currency. And I don't think Bitcoin needs to have that to have success. Gold isn't used to buy cups of coffee. Um, offshore bank accounts are $40 trillion and you're not using offshore bank accounts to buy cups of coffee. So, um, but at the same time, if it ever did want to become a currency, then we need to resolve the cash. Or I'm sorry, the tax thing, but knowing that Zen Ledger could help with that is, you know, it's nice, nice to have it there. So um, yeah, Dan, I appreciate you uh, answering that for us. And so uh, we'll link to your stuff so everyone can see it. And other than that, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for, thanks for joining in. Absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having hey, me. if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.